welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic today on the show. It's Mark Schindler in the building, the typical Schindler pod that happens once a week on this show. We're going to dive first into the Kevin Love potential buyout situation that may be occurring in Cleveland. Then we're going to talk about the new faces in new places across the NBA. What are our first impressions of NBA trade deadline acquisitions? Finally, we're going to close on one of Mark's favorite things to watch across the NBA right now. Malachi Branham for the San Antonio Spurs. Mark, what's going on, buddy? Uh, I'm good, Sam. I'm glad we can finally catch, catch up and talk some basketball because I've been waiting for it. Um, I, uh, I'm a little bit perturbed because it was like 50 in Ohio yesterday and I woke up and my <laughs> car was covered in snow this morning. So it's been that kind of uh, that kind of time. Uh, I was like finally starting to think, oh, we're getting away from it. Like it's raining this week instead of uh, instead of it being cold as hell. And we're back. So, um, no. you know, Midwest uh, wouldn't be a, a pod if I didn't start off with that. But no, it, how's everything on your you're in February in the Midwest? You always have one more like bad weekend. Once you hit mid February, oh, it'll snow. One it'll more. snow by me. Like we'll we'll get snow in late April. For oh sure. yeah, you're it'll in Cleveland. Happens. You have like the lake effect and everything. Yeah, it always happens every year. Yeah, you're screwed. Yeah, have fun. Have fun with that. I'll I'll live in I'm Australia. I'll, I have I have crazy spiders and bugs and things over here, but yeah, you can keep those you know, all away from me. Yeah, you know. you know what I don't have, Mark? I don't have frost, and I don't have random bouts of ice all over the place. It's well, lovely. I, I, I'll live with the I'll live with that instead of the <laughs> spiders because that's yeesh. Yeah, it's uh, you know the spiders. You, you you learn you learn to befriend them over time. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> we'll go with that. Yeah. Uh, okay. The first thing we want to talk about is the Kevin Love buyout. It was reported by Adrian Wojnarowski and Sham Sharania. Basically, it seemed like simultaneously that Kevin Love and Cleveland are exploring a buyout. Shams and Jason Lloyd at The Athletic mentioned that Miami seems to be a real potential landing spot for Kevin Love. Let's start here. Kevin Love is out of Cleveland's rotation right now. Cleveland's rotation in general seems a little bit weird because they're doing weird things with like Dean Wade, who has been really valuable for them at times. They're doing weird things uh, like throwing Danny Green directly into the fire. I I don't really know what to think of what Cleveland is doing rotationally right now. But Kevin Love has been out of the rotation. What do we think Kevin Love has left at this point? I mean, I think that is the big question. Like how much of this... Uh, his struggles this year because I mean this has been bar none his worst year in the NBA like that's I mean saying that lightly he's going to I'm I'm not trying to stoke the fires and say he's a hall of famer but you you do have to mention his name with hall of fame uh Kevin loves a hall of famer I I want to be very clear about this I I feel very strongly he's gonna be arguing about this in the comments and say that he's not but I agree um but point being like it, it makes sense he's 34 like he's been in the league for a long time injuries have hampered him the question is just gonna be how much of this was the the thumb injury that he sustained early on in the year and how much of this is him just being kind of shot mobility wise. Cause I think that's been the bigger problem more so than his thumb. Like obviously he hasn't shot well, but he just doesn't really seem to have a lot of lift anymore. Not that, that he had a ton last year either, but um, it's just a little bit eerily reminiscent of the pre COVID year. Um, 
pre-COVID in the in the COVID year, so in 2021, when he was really kind of struggling um, in general with the back injury again. So I am I am I think that's going to be the biggest hinge factor on it. But also the, the the fact that that is part of the equation is like okay, well, what if that is the issue? Like, what if he just maybe he's yeah. looking better after having some time off? Maybe if we can, you know, get him in with our our uh, training staff and you know work on making sure that he's good and ready to go. Like, I mean, obviously he does that himself without question, but like, I think if you, if, if a team can feel really good about what that could look like and say, Hey, we can have 15 to 20 minutes of pretty good Kevin love. That is a swing factor for a few teams. Yeah. So let's kind of talk about what Kevin love has been this season. So per Daryl Blackport's terrific play by play stats.com uh, Kevin love this season, the Cavs are plus seven without him in the minutes on the court. Uh, they are plus 3.6 with him on the court. Uh, their defensive rating is 111.97. That's a little bit over two points worse per 100 possessions. But here's the thing. Basically, 112, that range, is seventh place in the league defensively. So while I do have real concerns that Kevin Love can't really move anymore, and there have been some very bad tape moments, like clips that you can pull that show that Kevin Love really is struggling to move right now. The Cavs have been okay with him on the court defensively, which I think is a testament as much as anything to the defensive insulation they have around him. But also, he's a smart defender, and he's a very smart basketball player. I think he knows he knows that he's always had a very real knowledge of what his limitations are, mm-hmm. I think, on that end. And he kind of gets away with being slow. Like, obviously, the stop is the moment where he will be remembered for in Cleveland forever. The stop for people not in Cleveland, like Mark, uh, the stop is – him guarding Stephen Curry 30 feet away from the basket, 25 feet away from the basket in game seven of the NBA finals and shutting him down. He can't do that anymore for sure. And there were moments throughout his career, even when he was in his prime where he probably couldn't do that effectively consistently. But in that moment, he locked up, locked him down and got it done. Kevin Love's not that guy anymore, but Kevin Love is still shooting 35% from three, 89% from the line, averaging 8.7 rebounds in 20 minutes per game. That's still a useful rotation player, especially when you consider he's a really smart ball mover, really, really sharp passer. Teams that do need an offensive foreman, I think will be helped by having Kevin Love out there. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, for like exactly like you're saying, I think fit's going to be really important for him for where he does yeah. go. Um, and part of what makes me excited about, like, I'm, I, I mean, did we mention already Miami? Miami and, and Phoenix are the two teams that have been mentioned with him the most that I've yeah. seen reporting. Uh, which one of those two do you like better? Miami, for sure. Like, I, I think it would be cool to see him in, in Phoenix, but I think for – a for Miami, like they're in an interesting spot because I think Orlando Robinson has done some nice things for them, but also I think it's just Kevin Love. Even if he is a little bit shot, I I don't want to say he's a clear upgrade, but I think that he gives them a different element that they don't really have. Um, you know, it. I mean, they haven't had it since Kelly Olynyk was there, and having that kind of pop threat 
um, especially while being somebody who is uh, a really good passer and screener and playmaker out of DHOs, and that fits what they do incredibly well. Um, you know, you can envision that opening things up and what they want to do in a meaningful way, especially because yeah. it's not like, I mean, like we've talked about before with Kevin Love, um, like, I mean, he's a, he's a shooter that you have to guard. It's not like you can just ignore him. Like he's incredibly good at just being a productive flair guy. And like, you can build him into sets and do a ton of read and react stuff with him that, that matters. Um, and I think you can play him with Bam. Like, I think that's the biggest thing for me. Like yes, right now, like I, you, you can play him with Bam without having to worry about any kind of spacing limitations. Um, and I think defensively it's interesting-ish. Like, I think almost Miami might work better for him than anywhere else because they're just going to ask him to play zone. And I think that's probably what he's going to be most effective yeah. in right now. Um, and mainly just because they have so many other smart defenders. And it is interesting because, like, they are – like, Miami's a pretty small team. But, again, yeah. like, playing yeah. his own, like, I do think that they can get away with some of that stuff. And he just boosts things for them offensively and they need the offense boost so um yeah. i would be very in love with that fit for them even and uh, and for him well and i would imagine that i would imagine miami is the smallest team in the league right just in terms yeah, of yeah, like yeah. minutes played if, if they're not they've they're certainly up there i mean maybe the lakers weirdly might be just because they had so many of those minutes playing like two six foot three guys are shorter two six foot one guys with Dennis Schroeder and Patrick Beverly you know three at times like six foot three guys are shorter so it's possible they're up there but Miami is certainly one of the teams that play smaller in the league having said that they do have guys like Bam Adebayo Jimmy Butler Caleb Martin uh you know Haywood Highsmith is a really really good defender like I think that you can get away with pairing Kevin Love with those guys and making it work what I would be worried about is a lot of Bam's minutes obviously come with Tyler Hero, and I don't know how I'd feel about Tyler Hero and Kevin Love on the court together in a playoff series. I think you would have to stagger those two rotationally and try and figure out a way to make it work. But I think that his overall intelligence level, his size, this is a team that's 27th in offensive rating in the NBA right now. They really just need to try something at the mm. end of the day, right? They, they just need to see if they can find an answer in some regard. They're also 19th in offensive rebounding rate. Kevin Love isn't necessarily what he was. We were talking before we got on air about what Kevin Love was in Minnesota, right? Where he's averaging 15 rebounds a game and was one of the most fun rebounders in the league. He's not that guy anymore. But if you told him, hey, we need you to go in, we need you to try and crash the offensive glass, create a couple of free chances for us, He's so smart. His angles are so good. He's so intelligent. That could be a way for them to generate offense in a well, somewhat reasonable way. Well, and part of what could be fun with that, too, because something that they really don't have, um, like there are, it feels like maybe I'm over indexing, but it feels like every game there are two or three passes where they're trying to get Bama post entry and it is so telegraphed that it's turned over. I think if you add Kevin to that, like I think, I mean, Kevin's an awesome post entry passer. And then, you can do a lot of really exciting stuff with high lows, which they've already been doing in Cleveland a ton the last couple of years. And I think that adds an element that would be huge for Bam's game because as much as Miami has struggled offensively, like I think we could just continue to see Bam flourish and become a really capable half-court shot creator, um, which has been incredibly enticing. I think his dribble is just a little bit tighter. Like he has even more confidence and and aggression in what he does. And um, 
again, I think just adding what what Kevin could do would be that that's that's exciting to me. And it definitely like I don't yeah. think that it quote unquote makes him like some dominant title contender, but I think it adds an element that they don't have and strengthens them as they try and you know climb up the standings as much as they can. Yeah, I agree with you. The other team that you mentioned is Phoenix, and let's just transition to talking about Phoenix now. I am even more sold that team or like people that are talking in the media are kind of underestimating how impossible this Suns team is going to be to stop offensively. They're going to be so good when Kevin Durant starts playing basketball again. I don't know how you're going to find a way to slow them down, just given how multiple they're going to be offensively with running Kevin Durant off of actions, having Kevin Durant like spot up in the corner where Mikael Bridges used to be occasionally having someone like Monty Williams draw up really creative opportunities where guys like Kevin Durant are coming up from the corner and running DHOs with, you know, either Chris Paul, who's coming over and handing it off after initiating the action as he initiates the action or Deandre Ayton, who gets the ball out of like a horns pass and then comes up and sets a dribble handoff screen for Kevin Durant. There are just so many different ways they're going to be able to beat you because Kevin Durant, Chris Paul, Devin Booker can all space the floor really well from three. They can all create their own shot and they're all killer mid-range shooters and they're all good three-point pull-up shooters. That's a lot of different pieces to stop while having to deal with all of it also in isolation and having to have three elite on-ball defenders basically on the court at once to not have a significant mismatch problem out there. Do you feel any more or less strongly about the Suns than you did before or when we podcasted? I guess that was a week ago now. Um, I think I feel about the same, and I don't mean that to be like derogatory. I just mean more like – I exactly like you're talking about. Like I, I, I saw automatically. I was like, you put those three guys together. Like, hell yeah, man. Um, more importantly, Josh Kogi is now just uh, like they, yeah. they traded Mikhail Bridges to unearth Josh Kogi, and I, I mean he scored I think 15 or more every single game since coming back from injury. Granted, it's been four I, games. But I think he had five threes last night. It was like... he was he had an out of body experience last night. They lost the game. I don't care. <laughs> that was uh, that was sick. I really enjoy watching that. He can never take the face mask on again. I mean, off again. Um, but point being, like, I think the game against uh, in Sacramento was a really good indicator of like that made me really think like, oh wow, imagine adding Kevin to this. Like, I cannot wait to see that because. Um, you can make whatever you want out of Sacramento's defense. I think their biggest issue continues to be size. Like they, I don't think that their defense was like abysmal in that game. It was more that was like the worst potential scheme yeah. matchup possible. Their whole defense is put two on the ball, and that opens up tons of shooting pockets for um, just in the mid range and in general for for when for 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 guys like like Chris Paul, like Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton, and they're just walking into 16 footers that end up being like contested, but for the most part, like that's stuff that Not you really. can't really Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. But also like that's like I mean that's the kind of stuff that you build a defense around to 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 be like, okay, well we're we're comfortable letting somebody shoot 40% from there. But this team has that kind of otherworldly touch where it's not a bad shot. Like it, there's not really a good answer for them. 
And I think obviously you're going, they'll play better defensive teams, of course. I mean, as we saw with the Clippers last night. Um, but I think to me, I just don't know what answers you're going to have against this team. Uh, like, are you going to put two on the ball? Cause I don't think that's going to work. Like even with teams that have done that already, their fifth man has been like, they've what I'm really interested to continue seeing. And this maybe is me nerding out too much. Like I already know what I'm getting out of that, that top three. I think I've been really impressed with DeAndre yeah. so far too, but like uh, compared to what the rest of the season has been, it's been very up and down, but like they've really empowered Tory Craig and, and Josh Koji when they're on court in this like last week or so to just be like, okay, go crash the offensive class because yep. we know you're not going to guard anyways with how much attention the other three are already receiving. Like oh, you're, you're bound to get something easy there. Um, so I just don't know what answers there are going to be. I'm very excited to see what this looks like. Um, I know we were talking about Kevin Love. I'm not sure how to tie that back, but yeah. Well, no, I, I mean, I kind of wanted to transition out of Kevin Love because I, I think that the things that Tori Craig and Josh Koji bring to the table are more valuable for this Suns roster than what Kevin Love would bring to the table. All due respect to Kevin Love. Tory Craig is a very good defender of, you know, fours can slide down to the five occasionally also deals with bigger forwards like threes. Well, Josh Koji, I think deals with backcourt players particularly well defensively. So what Phoenix can do essentially is th- there's been a lot of talk of who's going to be the fifth starter. Uh, is it going to be Tory Craig or Josh Koji or someone they pick up off the buyout market? Is it going to be Terrence Ross? I think it's going to be one of Tory Craig or Josh Koji, and they're just going to be able to mix and match depending on what the matchup is night after night. Like, do you need to slow down an offensive initiator? Are you playing Dallas, for instance? Well, if you're playing Dallas, you pick the one that you feel best about guarding Luka Doncic, and you go from there. If you're playing Sacramento, I start Josh Koji because my goal is to slow down De'Aaron Fox and to annoy him and then be able to get some blows for Chris Paul and Devin Booker to where they don't have to guard him all the time. If it's the Los Angeles Clippers, I go with Torrey Craig because I would rather have Craig guarding one of Kawhi Leonard or Paul George. They're just going to be able to mix and match, I think, in such a substantially interesting way with that duo that does two things that are similar in role in that they're going to be a low-usage defensive player but different in the way it works out in practicality. And that's why I think I continue to really like this team, especially given it might just be that Josh Koji like ends up being this guy that's averaging 20 points per game over his last four games. Now that he just has all the offensive space mind. in the world. It'd be the greatest. <laughs> <laughs> it would but be so cool. If that happens, I guess you have to start him, but I'm guessing that won't happen throughout the year. And I think it's just going to be able to really simple mix and match, right? Just, it, I'm making it sound easier than it is probably, but it makes sense to me. Just mix and match. Yeah, it yeah no, it I get exactly right. what you're saying. Because, like, if you add Kevin Love to this, there's no way you should start, if we're being blunt. Like, I think yeah. the idea for me would be maybe he comes in and is their backup center or gives them some some minutes there. Because, like, I do think that that – I don't want to say it's a weakness because I do think Jock, Jock Landau has done some, good, done, done some good things this year. But I do think that, in theory – you know, if Kevin is healthy, he, or at least a little bit better than he's been earlier this year, even if let's say, even if he is the same player, like I do think you have some defensive deficiencies, but in the half court, I think that's a more productive offensive player. Um, yeah. than what jocks man. So I would yeah. be interested, but I think, yeah, I'm still, I'm very sold on Miami for them. 
Yeah, what do you think of Terrence say, Ross getting 17 shots of last night? Yeah. Well, I mean, they I loved it. With <laughs> I'm so here without Kevin Durant, they probably need 33 shots on some level from Josh Koji and Terrence Ross, right? Because mm-hmm. those it's not like they have a ton of scoring depth beyond Booker Paul and Aiton. Oh, and Aiton's sure. just gonna get his twelve or thirteen every night, yeah. right? I so. just I had to I need my shot. I love Terrence Ross. Uh so I I it just it fits the bit so well of him coming in and taking 17 shots in the yeah. game with the team. Um well it does, and I, I think that he's a valuable pickup for them. They needed yeah. bench scoring, and he will provide bench scoring for them in a pretty real way. Uh the the other point I do want to kind of bring up here is it seems very clear to me as well that Tory Craig and Josh Koji are just going to be ahead of Darius Baisley in this as well. Uh, I think that it feels, I don't want to say clear, but it, it feels like the Sarich for Baisley move was probably more of a luxury tax avoidance move, yeah. which is reasonable. Like on their part, they needed to do something to reduce the tax bill after adding Kevin Durant and taking on a bit of money to do that. But you know, Baisley was someone that we thought could provide some versatility and maybe he can athletically at some point during the season. Maybe once he, you know, gets ingrained there, learns the sets that they want him to run, everything like that. It's very possible he could help, but it does seem like Tory Craig and Josh Koji are just straight up ahead. And it makes sense that they are because they've been there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, they played 13 guys last night. Monty Williams came out after the game and said that he played too many guys and Darius was the one guy he didn't play on the bench. So, um, yeah, I think that it, it feels pretty unlikely that we're going to see him unless some kind of injury happens. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on and talk about Kyrie Irving and Luka Doncic. Those two players will be playing together. Have you heard of that, Mark? Uh, I mean, I hadn't heard about it. And then I turned on the fourth quarter uh, of Mavs Wolves. And that was just, uh, that was special. Um, Kyrie's fourth yeah. quarter was just like, I mean, that's the first time in Luca's career that we've seen somebody else take over in heat check time. Uh, but heat check yeah. time was for 12 minutes. Um, like, that was kind of wild, just watching, like, A, Luca. I mean, like, he he brought up the ball in some at some points. But, like, it was a lot of just give Kyrie the ball, man, and get the hell out of the way. Yeah. Um, like, there, there, really, there was really not any kind of plays being run. And that was what was so fun in watching it. It made me yeah. – in some ways, it made me feel – all that more excited about the Mavs. And it also made me not that worried about the Wolves. Like, I think a lot of people were like, oh, the Wolves are giving up this thing. I'm like, dude, I, you could put Prime Ron Artest out there, and I don't think that we're getting stops right now. So, like, yeah, uh, just just enjoy the game. Um, I well, the, the thing with the, the thing I want to mention from that as well is just like Luka Doncic has never gotten an opportunity to essentially play four on four, right? Because every time that Kyrie Irving is on the court, they've like put him in the corner a decent amount actually like started him in the corner, maybe had him come up for dribble handoffs or just like have him spot in the corner for possession. Sometimes mm-hmm. we've never seen Luca get a chance to play basically four on four where the man has to stay purely attached to a player that is as talented as Kyrie Irving. Right. And having all of that extra space for Luca and it will be more space for Luca. I think is just very real. And then, oh, by the way, what you said happened against Minnesota where Kyrie was just able to completely take over and dominate a game. Yeah, it's pretty fun. I really enjoyed watching that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think what I'm really interested to see is what they do defensively because 
I again, and I'm not trying to discredit people for how they felt, but I think there was a lot of well, how are they going to play defensively? Like how how can they hang on the court together? And I was like, they're 25th in defense this year, man. I could care less if we're being completely honest. Like, no, I definitely like, care. Well, I mean, like, <laughs> no, I okay, I care. But the point is, like, okay, you're adding somebody who is one of the best shot creators and secondary yeah. uh, secondary scores in the league, playing off of elite talent. With what the defense has been already, it literally cannot be worse. Like, yeah. I, I just I, I, automatically, I was like, okay, I, I'm throwing that that out the window. And I think to me, what was most interesting in that game is watching what uh, Jason Kidd really tried to do in that fourth quarter. Like, they went super small. Like, they were playing Josh yeah. Green at the five, and so it was like Josh Green, Kyrie, Luca. Um, Reggie Bullock was out there. I'm yeah. trying to remember who the fifth player was, but Bullock um, was the fourth. I remembered. I, I can't yeah. remember who the fifth was. Um, I think, yeah, they, I mean, they were playing Theo Pinson at times. Like they were, I think, yeah, it was Theo Pinson and Frank Nolakino were, were swapping on and off, which I love how randomly Theo Pinson went from just being bench guy to now being in the rotation, playing like 10 to 15 minutes a game. Uh, and he's been fine. Like it's, it, it's uh, always an experience watching him drive the basketball, but um he makes plays uh, with what, whether they're positive or negative depends, but he always does at hundred miles an hour. But point being like, it's not necessarily awesome defense, but it's again, it is better than what they were doing before. It's okay. Let's be active as shit. Let's try and be really aggressive. Try and force something we know we're going to get killed on the glass. Uh, we can't really play out of our, uh, Jason Kidd does not trust any of their bigs. Um, for yeah. the most part. Well, and, and for so what it's worth, that's gonna that's gonna change too because yeah. they're gonna get Maxi Kleba yeah, back, which I'm excited about. That um, Maxi will change this in a pretty substantial way. Yeah, but I'm I'm just like I'm very excited to see what, how they continue to try and figure things out defensively because I did think like again it wasn't great defense, but the activity was there, so I was encouraged. I was like, this is better than what I've seen from the Mavs all year. So. Um, Mark, what do you think? What do you think Dallas's defensive rating is in the 58 minutes that Kyrie and Luca have played? So oh, far? it's probably not very good. It's 124. Yeah, not good. <laughs> it's real bad. But look, it's small sample. They won't be that bad defensively, but they don't have answers yet. Like Josh Green, I think, is a answer that will help them. Like he, they don't have the answer. I guess is what I would say. They have an answer and Josh Green just being ready to play. Josh Green should be playing 28 to 33 minutes a night. I wouldn't move, yeah, exactly. I wouldn't move him out of the starting lineup. I would keep him. Yeah. Even well, I'm at the back. point where I, I think Josh Green is there is a non-zero chance Josh Green is their third best player. Are, are we there? Uh I'm trying to think. Would I be there yet? I mean, it's got to be close. Like he's he's been really good. He's been really, really basically good since he's been back from this little inactive like stretch that he had, where I can't remember what he did. What? Why, how did he hurt himself? I have no idea. For being yeah, I can't back. remember. But he's been back for 15 games. He started eight of them. He's averaging 13 points, three rebounds, two assists, while shooting 52 percent from the field, 38 percent from three, 73 percent from the line. Uh, has obviously been incredibly active defensively has also been a real transition threat. And I think that's where I want to go with this next. Kyrie has already pretty quickly added a real dynamic for them in transition. This was a team 
as we've talked about throughout the year, plays incredibly slow, right? They're a bit of a slog offensively from time to time. A lot of Luca ISO, a lot of Luca ball screens, a lot of pounding the ball into the ground for Luca. Kyrie is just going. Like, that's what he does. He is going to get the ball and he's going to attack in transition. He is going to fly up and down the court and try and get that easy bucket. He's smart about when to bring it out. And he will continue to, I think, adjust that, especially as they get into the playoffs and they need to play more half-court sets. But Kyrie is going. And the biggest thing that we talked about in terms of this deal that went like way under the radar is that Dallas has been abysmal in the non-Luka minutes this year, right? They've just been terrible. They were like minus six and a half or something like that in non-Luka Doncic minutes prior to this trade. With Kyrie Irving on the court and with Luka Doncic off the court so far, Dallas is plus eight and a half. Now, that's not going to hold. Like, they're not going to be a plus nine team, which would be the best team in the league, without Luka Doncic with Kyrie Irving on the court. But if they're even, they're getting back like three points per game. And that's an enormous jump for a situation that's going to happen for 12 minutes a night, basically. If you're getting back three plus three points in one quarter of the game, you have made an enormous move even before we get to the dimension that Kyrie gives them offensively when he's on the court with Luka Doncic. It's an enormous, enormous, enormous addition for them. I'm all in on it, at least on offense. I think that they're going to be great offensively. They do have real defensive things to figure out. And I think that Maxi Kleba's re-addition back into the fold, following what I believe is a hamstring tear. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I think it was something like that. Yeah. As soon as he gets back, I think that they're going to look a lot different defensively because they will have a big that they trust defensively to be able to switch, to be able to protect the weak side of the rim, to be able to just be available in help when someone like Kyrie inevitably gets beat off the bounce because he will. And that's okay because he's giving you so much more offensively, but he's going to be there to clean up in a real way that Dallas, Dallas doesn't even really have a cleanup person on defense right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's been rough. Um, I agree. And I, I, again, like I, I wasn't trying to skirt the defense too much, but I think again, it's more just seeing them be active is is an upgrade. So I'm I'm encouraged. But yeah, yeah um, we're in, yeah we're on the same track with that. Okay, so let's go next. Let's just talk about the Wolves because Mike Conley is obviously an enormous addition for the Wolves, and they're one and two. Conley had a really bad game against Washington. Like he went 0 of 6 from the field. He didn't score. Washington beat them. I think I think that they were at home for that game too. And I think that like there's been a bit of a slight overreaction. I think the process for the Wolves in those three games that Mike Conley has played cuz I've watched them, it just looks better to me. What what do you think of that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's been uh a much more intentional um without it feeling intentional without it feeling like mechanical uh ability to get Rudy involved and yeah. important. um like that's so key in them unlocking things and I think that's parlayed with him playing better defensively too um so I think that's been key 
what I'm most interested to see is what this continues to mean for Kyle Anderson. Like how, cause, and I don't mean that like you traded for Mike Conley because you need him to be the point guard, because as much as I love Kyle Anderson, like him being their lead facilitator is going to have real issues in the playoffs. Um, like I still, I, I think I'm higher on Kyle Anderson as a playoff player than most, but like as your lead guy, mm-hmm. no, like that, that can't happen. Um, but I think in terms of like how they continue to find that dynamic, well, having to rework what their offense looks like um, with him getting healthy again, because he's been out the last couple of games, if I remember correctly. I'm trying to pull up right now. because I think he might have played last night, but he'd missed. Yeah. Um, never mind. He's played all the games with Conley. I'm misremembering. It's been a long week. Please forgive. Um, but He missed yeah, a couple I, games before that is yeah. what you're remembering. Yes. Um, I am just interested. Like, he still played well, but I think that there are I'm, – I'm just interested to see how they continue to toy with that because Chris Finch likes to to mess around with things. I don't mean that in a bad way, but, like, he, he likes to tinker. So um, I'm interested to see what that looks like. Well, they're, they're multiple in the ways that they can initiate the offense, but I will note, like, you, you brought up the idea of Mike Conley getting Rudy Gobert involved more. I think that's like unequivocally happening already. So in the minutes where Mike and Rudy have played together, they are a plus 7.1 in those minutes and they are one and two in those three games, right? So that they are, they're playing really well with Rudy Gobert and Mike Conley together. It's just that they've just gotten destroyed in the other minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With Rudy, without Conley prior to this, you know, throughout the entire season, they were negative 0.8. Um, Rudy is averaging two and a half more points per 100 possessions with Mike Conley on the court. He's getting his shots about half of a foot closer to the rim, which doesn't seem like much, but when you're going from taking them from two feet away to one and a half feet away, it means you're getting more dunks. You're literally going 25% closer to the basket just by adding Mike Conley. That's actually a big thing. And I think it's why uh, we've seen that Rudy's true shooting percentage is 5% better with Mike Conley uh, than it was without Mike Conley this year. It's small sample, obviously, but again, this is about process, right? The process looks better, I think, for the Wolves in these three games in terms of getting Rudy involved. Now, what, what happens with Carl Towns? is another question entirely. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's what's going to be fascinating about this in general. Like you add that on top of, again, like the, the because I'd imagine Kyle is going back to the bench when when yeah. Kat comes back. Um, so it's, again, like, okay, well, cool. You finally found things that are, are working. And now, now what? <laughs> like, how do we... How do you? I mean, because we, we've talked about this on the pod before, just like how do you reintegrate somebody like Carl? Um, and I, again, like obviously Carl's all NBA talent, like he's a really good player. But after you've got these things that have made things more functional, like again, I think having Mike alongside Carl's I mean, huge is what like the best point guard that Carl's played with is Jeff Teague. So, um, mm, played with Ricky, right? Oh wait, yeah, Jesus. Okay, never. Yeah, never mind. It was Ricky. Um, no, that's not intended to just Teague slander, but uh, never forget when he was in Indiana and he thought that he deserved the most shots on the team when Paul George existed. But <laughs> um, yeah, uh, yeah, I think that I, I think Mike can do a lot that I'm interested to see alongside, like figuring things out with with Carl and Rudy in those minutes. But um, 
it's just a really interesting dynamic to try and figure out with this team. Yeah, is is the best point guard that Carl Towns has played with Jimmy Butler? <laughs> it's probably uh, Jimmy, right? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. yeah. Just in terms of you know playing off of somebody who actually collapses the defense in a real way, and you know is capable of making life easier. I mean, that year Carl Towns averaged twenty one and twelve and shot like fifty five, forty two, eighty six. Like he was mm-hmm. that that was that was a really really good cat year. Um, yeah, I mean, look, and then like we haven't even gotten to the defense. This is just like the big questions that we've had about the Wolves the whole way. I think Mike Conley's going to make it easier on everybody. I think that's undeniable, and I think that ultimately it still comes down to whether or not you think Rudy Gobert and Carl Towns can play together, and that goes on both ends on some level, right? Like when you have Carl Towns posting up in the mid post can you throw Rudy just in the dunker spot and make it work? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you, when you have Carl Towns spacing from three, it works, but is Carl Towns going to be happy like spacing from three regularly? Probably not, but he is excellent at attacking closeouts and making passing reads on the move. So there's a lot that you can do. It's just making it so that everyone is happy. And Oh, by the way, undeniably this is now Anthony Edwards's team he has taken a leap that he he looks better right now over the course of this little two-month period I think than Carl Towns ever did in terms of like translatable to real postseason success play I would rather have this version of Anthony Edwards than any version we've seen of Carl Towns because I just buy Anthony Edwards to be able to create shots and to figure it out defensively in a way we haven't seen from Towns so if you have to prioritize one guy getting the ball over the other, it's going to be Edwards. And then, oh, by the way, Mike Conley is going to have the ball, and Mike Conley is super unselfish. But, like, I, I don't know I don't know where Towns fits into this. And I know that he was really deferential early in the season. And I thought did a really good job of trying to get everyone involved. But is he, is he going to be happy with that long term? Maybe he will be now that he has, like, the full extension – in place and like he doesn't really have to worry about it anymore from that perspective yeah that's uh sneakily one of the more interesting dynamics to see over the next couple months is what that plays out like i don't know i I have no idea what it'll be oh yeah exactly i have no idea either but it's like the i don't want to be the person to figure that out because that seems like not my uh not my cup of tea And, and the good news is that chris finch during his time in denver when he was you know he's I don't want to say he's the guy that unlocked Nikola Jokic. I think Nikola Jokic unlocked Nikola Jokic, but he's the one that really figured out a lot of the creative stuff to do in order to get Jokic in better positions. And he's been pretty creative since he's been in Minnesota. I I really have liked what Chris Finch has done this season. This Minnesota team is not perfect. And yet they sit here at the all-star break and they're 31 and 30 after a really bad start where they had no idea really how to make it work with Gobert and Towns. And then Towns goes out and you think that you're losing one of your best players and they go on a run. Chris Finch is extremely creative in the way that he goes about figuring things out. If anyone can do it, it's him. It's just a lot to figure out. (laughs) It might not work. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a quick commercial break here. And then we're going to jump in to the Brooklyn Nets, who have been a very strange team to watch. 
We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP hackers and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, for instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla minus one recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan and you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. Nord VPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account. nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, let's get back into this. The Brooklyn Nets, they're sitting at one and two as well since moving Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant both. Uh, they had a close loss to Philadelphia the first game. I think it was like 101 to 98, 97, something like that. Then they got blown out by the Knicks because the Knicks are apparently a super team that is blowing everybody out now. Uh there's just not really another way to look at it. And then the Mikhail Bridges breakout game against Miami, where he dropped 45 and was totally dominant in substantial ways. What have been your impressions of the Brooklyn Nets thus far, Mark Schindler? Uh, I mean, I think they've been, uh, it, it's been fun just to see all these guys in a new place. Um, some of the lineups that they've gotten to run out, like it's the, the kind of stuff that you you put together in a in a two K draft. Like, um, I mean, their starting lineup, like Spencer, DFS, Mikhail, Cam, and and Clax. Like, it's fun to watch. But also, I think when you're talking about like, um, I this mean, this is I think, the most 
This is the most Mark Schindler 2K draft team I think <laughs> yeah. that's ever existed, by the way. You don't – I have some absolutely sicko things I used to do in 2K, so you don't even want to hear. Uh, but, like, yeah, I I mean, I think they've been fun to watch. We'll, we'll talk about McHale in a second, but I think from an actual team process standpoint, like, um, I think the defense is cool, but also you you see some limitations with it. Um, because outside of McHale, I don't think that they have, like, true really good on-ball stoppers, like – DFS is fine. Like, I think, again, like this is, I think they'll continue to be a pretty solid defensive unit um, under Jock Vaughn with what they've done this year. Offensively, the transition stuff is really fun. Like, when they can get into early offense, it looks really good. Um, I think the issue is just always going to come down to half court with what this group is right now. Like, we've seen what offenses look like with Spencer at the head, and that's not to be, you know, unfair to him, but it's, mm-hmm. they're just, there's levels to it. And I, I think that, We've seen it already when this team is getting bogged down in the half court. It can be a little bit, uh, a little bit, <laughs> a little bit tough. Like I tweeted something out when the uh, when the first starting lineup got announced. I was like, this team's going to lead the league in potential assists, uh, or not potential assists, secondary assists. And then somebody like followed up, like, yeah, but <laughs> who's getting the actual assists? And I was like, yeah, that's a great right. question because I don't know. Um, and that plays out like they they pass a lot. They pass a lot, and uh, <laughs> they, they pass a lot around the perimeter. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, like, I mean, a lot of their looks are coming out of, okay, pass the ball, try and get something going side to side. And, yeah, I mean, that's – we've seen teams like that that – and, and it's, again, like, we're, I'm not – I don't think anybody's expecting this team to be, like, a real contender in the playoffs, but that's what yeah. they're at team-wise right now. But yes. against Miami Heat, Mikhail Bridges just did something. And, it, like, that was – that was exciting. Like, he's shown stuff all year. Like I think he'd yeah. really made real strides in, in Phoenix that had kind of gone under, under, um, under talked just because of what Phoenix was, uh, from, right. from dealing with the injuries. Um, but that fourth quarter against Miami, when he's just getting the ball in isolation and just getting told, okay, do stuff. And he, they, yeah, there are some, there are some bad shots mixed in there for sure. But then, okay, what about the three where he's hitting a fader like right over Jimmy Butler or where he's getting to the rim after crossing Jimmy Butler? Like that's the stuff where I think it makes you rethink a little bit of what his ceiling can be um, because he's getting opportunities that just were frankly never going to be there in Phoenix to get to this next level. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So a team, you know, there were reports that teams offered them like three or four first round picks for Mikhail Bridges. And I think that that was smart <laughs> by those teams. And I think, it was, I don't know, like, I don't know what I would have done if I was Brooklyn. I'd need to know the protections on the picks. I would imagine there were some protections on them. But I saw, like, Kendrick Perkins kind of get absolutely obliterated for saying that the Phoenix Suns held back Mikhail Bridges. And I, I disagree with Kendrick Perkins on many basketball takes. Probably most basketball <laughs> takes. Uh, I don't know if I totally disagree with this. I, I think that like you can't say that the coaching staff held him back or that he wasn't developing in Phoenix. Like you could see it this year, like you said. I think something like thirty percent of his uh, field goals this year are unassisted, which is like a career high that is pretty drastic because they really used him to initiate a lot when. Um, when Devin Booker and when Chris Paul missed time. Right. So I think that 
it's not that he was held back developmentally. It's that the situation didn't give him a ton of opportunities to really rock. Right. And that's okay. It's not what they needed him to do. It's not what he shouldn't be getting possessions to rock over Chris Paul and Devin Booker. Right. Those guys are two all NBA players, but I do think that now we're going to get a chance to see Mikael Bridges blossom and grow. And I think he has some real shit to him off the bounce. I really do. I always have. I've always liked the way he plays side ball screens, particularly. Uh, like if he takes a dribble handoff coming up from the corner, if he takes, you know, just a straight side pick and roll off of a secondary pass from Chris Paul, I think he really knows how to operate in those scenarios. I, so like, I, I think that he's probably going to average over 20 points per game is where I'm at. Like right now he's averaging 25 in these three games because of the uh, enormous breakout, like 45 point game against Miami where he was just like attacking Jimmy Butler and like going for it and it ruled. But I, I think that he's got real offensive game to him. And I think the time in Phoenix playing with Chris Paul, playing with Devin Booker, playing in an offense led by Monty Williams, I think it helped develop him. And I think that they didn't hold back his development. It's just that he didn't get a ton of reps. Yeah. And I, he's going to get the reps now. I, I'll i be more crass with this one, just in being frank. Like, they were not holding him back at all. Like, that is a no, – not really. That, that is a bullshit I, take. Like, I think that this year, this year where he proved that, like, he could take some stuff on – like he probably wasn't getting as much of an opportunity as he could have been. I mean, exactly. At a certain also point. Like, and even last year, too. Yeah, extent. but but point being, like, like you mentioned, like Devin Booker was on the team all of last year. Chris Paul right. is still there this year. He's not being held back. Like, I think no, in terms no, of anything, no, no. like looking at his development, like I think this is a testament to his what his development has been. Like oh. this is to me, I think this is such a great example of pointing and being like, okay. We're going to give you 35% usage and figure it out. And we're going to bring you along slowly and continue to incorporate you into sets and get things figured out. And like, I'm not saying there's a right or wrong way for doing it, but I think often the only idea for development is the first option of, okay, give this guy a ton of usage, let him run ball screens and see what happens. Like that really just doesn't work for everybody. Like it's too much. Like anytime I talk to players, like one of the, I think one of the best things I've ever been told is like a player, um, was very good now uh they were like you know one of the the worst things that i ever did was telling myself i need to improve at every single thing like they had to yeah. really be like i have to i have to deconstruct it i have Target to do it. one thing at a time because if i get good at this one thing it opens up three other things for me and then you can continue doing it and it's like again it's the player development is not one size fits all but yeah. it's just it's not as simple as saying let me rock in isolation like i just sorry i needed to get that off because no and i I agree with you on that and like i said like i I don't think that they held back his development at all i think that the way that they developed him played a critical role in what he is now and i think he is someone that like can play secondary reps on the ball like if i told you he turned into like a chris middleton-y scorer would that surprise you at this point uh probably not like i think that's definitely possible like he's got I think really it's on the table i yeah. think what like what's exciting is that he'd just be different in terms of what he can do getting into the rim already like he's better at yeah. getting to the rim and, and being shifty than chris has ever been um so yeah. i think that as a really interesting dynamic too 
I don't know if he'll ever have like the quite the same ability of contested shot making with what Chris has had from um, you know from his post up ability and the way that he's able to operate um, in tight spaces. Um, but definitely, yeah, different scores for sure. It wouldn't surprise me honestly. Like Mikhail has all of the tools to be like a really interesting mid post scorer, just in terms of super high release point pretty strong wiry strong through his base to be able to like hold that position there's some real upside there it's just like he never there was never a point for phoenix to do that right there's never a reason for phoenix to consider doing that it's just different like and i i'm very intrigued by mikhail like i'm at the point where i don't know i don't know if memphis was the team that offered four first round picks I saw that like some people speculated maybe that it was Memphis. I don't know if that was actually reported. Did you see that? Uh, I don't think I saw a report anywhere. Yeah. But if I was Memphis, I would offer a crazy amount of like draft capital for Mikhail Bridges. It just completely out of pocket, insane amount for Mikhail. He fits everything that they're looking for. Right. I think he can be a legit secondary creator. I think he'd be the exact player they want defensively to be able to take on tough assignments from John Morant. Like it it just, it fits across the board. Right. But if you're Brooklyn now, you have Mikhail Bridges on what a three and a half year deal that is going to turn out to be one of the absolute best contracts in the NBA. Mm -hmm. He is making what 21 million, 22 million over the course of the next three years. It's going to be an incredible contract. He's the guy that you build around there, I think, right? Yeah, or at least he's a super integral integral part of what they're doing. So, yeah, yeah. I, I concur. What have you thought of Cam Johnson thus far? I don't have any like extra Cam thoughts. I think he's been. I mean, he's been Cam. Like, I don't. I don't think yeah. that I feel like. I mean, I've always loved Cam. Like, I really like his game. I love what he brings. Um, like. Uh, I mean, it's hard to find players who shoot as like he hasn't shot well yet um, in yeah. Brooklyn. I think he will, um, but it's cool because he's getting a little bit more usage too, which that's yeah. exciting to me. Because frankly, like this team is going to play with a lot more pace than than the Suns do, uh, which I think fits Cam really well and opens up yeah. the idea of more of those secondary ball handling opportunities, which he's really capable of. Um, like he's a much better passer than I think his assist numbers indicate. Like he really sees the court well. He makes good reads. Um, he has pretty good ball placement. A lot of it's just his handle and burst aren't like awesome. So um, I uh, I think not that they're obviously a lesser extent than 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 what it would be with with Mikhail, but I think that there's again like and maybe there's another like level of him becoming more of a plus starter if he can t- continue to to add some things to his game. So Cam Johnson and Mikhail Bridges have played, oh, I think it was like 40 minutes. I'll look it up while we're talking. What do you think the plus minus is per 100 possessions for Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson playing together right now? Like plus 12? That probably yeah. is. Yeah. No, it is. Oh, it's oh, like it's plus, plus 11.3. It's wow. plus 11.3. Yeah. They've been awesome together for Brooklyn so far. They played 70 minutes together, uh, 121 offensive rating, 109.5 defensive rating. They've been really, really good together. It's interesting, though. They obviously go out and they get Dorian Finney-Smith and Spencer Dinwiddie. 
the minutes with Mikhail and Dorian together have not been very good. They're like plus three or minus three or something in those minutes. So it is kind of, it's a bit strange to figure out. They're going to have to mix and match. I think a lot of different lineups here moving forward. Cause you would think in theory that Dorian Finney Smith and Mikhail Bridges, especially if Mikhail is going to be like a legit secondary scorer who can average 20 points per game they would fit really well together because Mikhail can defend perimeter players, point of attack defenders. Dorian Finney-Smith is a terrific defender of bigger wings. Uh, I think he deals with those guys a little bit better than point of attack defenders. It should be like a really, really good combination together. And it might be, and oh, by the way, like Cam Johnson could fit like right in between them is the three man there. Uh, if you think you can slide with Mikhail playing as like the two, but they need a guy. <laughs> Like they just need a primary guy in some way that makes it work. And I, I just, I like Spencer. I think he's a really good player. He's like a definite starting quality player in the NBA. It's just, they don't, they don't have the guy in what is a star driven league now in today, today's yeah, league. Definitely. So, yeah, I mean, they're going to have to go out and get that guy and I don't know how they're going to do it. That, that's kind of the problem with this roster alignment now, right? Because they don't have their own picks they have all these other Phoenix picks and maybe Phoenix bottoms out at some point. But by the time Phoenix, the picks that they get from Phoenix bottom out, you're going to be in a situation where Mikhail has what two years left on his deal. No one year left on his contract uh, by 2025. So, you know, it's the timelines not adding up in addition to what they have to do is going to be, it's going to create for a very difficult situation for Sean Marks to manage now, I think. And I will be fascinated to see what they do this off season. Yes, I agree. They're in a, they're in an interesting spot. Um, they have a lot that they can do. A lot of guys who are um, movable. I, I like, I, I've, I, I do want to say though, I've seen stuff about like the idea of moving on from Nick Claxton. And I just like, I'm so far away from that. He's been so good this year. Um, like I get the idea of like when they have everything to insulate him now, like, yeah, you have the three perimeter shooters around him that are exactly what he needs. Yeah. So like, if you're going to, you're going to actualize Nick Claxton, that's what you want. And you want just like a big guard. Right. I, I think that people like are hung up on the Ben Simmons thing. And I talked about Simmons on the last podcast. I don't need to really do it again. It's a bummer, but Francis Patrick M in the comments brings up, Zach Levine for Ben Simmons swap with picks going to Chicago. I don't know, man. That's like not a disaster to me. Uh, Depend on how many picks and like what the protections are on the picks. But I'd need to think about it more, to be honest. I just don't know where I'd, I don't know how to feel about um, the whole situation. That maybe we'll have to do a pot on that sometimes. The whole situation with Ben is just like, it's difficult. Yeah. Um, it sucks. What I came down to uh, on the pod uh, with spins over the week was, oh, this just sucks. Like, this this is not fun to watch. I just don't like talking about it because of where it tends to go. And I, I don't want to invalidate anybody's feelings about it, but um, I tend to just generally very very much dislike how people approach it. So, um, yeah, I agree. I just hope Ben can get to a place where he's happy again. Oh, and, and trust me, like, one thing I talked about on the pod on Wednesday with spins was like, there was a art. I get it way worse than you do over here. There, there's oh, like man. a cottage industry 
to try and tear down Ben Simmons here. There was an article in News Corp where it was like, Ben Simmons commits the cardinal sin of basketball by passing up a layup again. It's just like, what are we doing? It was like a semi-contested layup that he it's probably should have taken. But, same thing to me is like, like uh, and I get like fans are always going to be upset when their team loses, but like if somebody quote-unquote travels on a sh- shot on the last play of the game, I just don't care if the shot goes in and it doesn't get called. Like, yeah. I'm not the ref. Like, it, <laughs> I just – no. The, basketball is too fun and too cool and awesome and enjoyable yeah. to get like that. And you know what? If that makes me a naive little child, I am happy to do that because the game's great and it's done a lot for me. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm going to stick with it. Yeah, and – at the end of the day, they need somebody, the Brooklyn Nets, to be able to put pressure on the rim to create shots, something along those lines. I don't know if the answer is Zach Levine. Frankly, it's probably not Zach Levine. Yeah. But there's something they, – they need someone to do that because it's, as soon as they get that guy, this roster makes so much more sense. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like what happened with Toronto. As soon as they got Kawhi, the roster made a million times more sense. As soon as this Nets team gets that guy – they're going to be pretty ready to contend. It's just that guy is also the hardest guy to get in the NBA. So how do you do it? Yeah. And that that's why the Nets are in a really tough spot now. Okay. Next up, let, let's just kind of buzz through some of these. So the New York Knicks have decided to go like obliterate every single team since acquiring Josh Hart. Do you know what the Knicks' offensive rating is in minutes with Josh Hart right now? Uh, probably like north of 120. Uh, higher. Keep, keep going. North of 130? <laughs> keep going. Oh, shit. Like 140? Uh, yeah, 147 right That's now. That's crazy. Do you know what it is in minutes with Jalen Brunson and Josh Hart? Oh man, uh, it's probably enough to give Jay Wright a heart attack. Like one seventy, <laughs> like it's got to be really damn good because Jalen, yeah. Jalen has been absurd like the last week or so. More importantly, I, I tweeted this out first night of the Josh Hart experience. Damian Lillard is sitting on his couch watching League Pass, disgusted at Josh Hart deciding to shoot threes again, <laughs> like. I mean, like, it's crazy. Yeah. Like, I, I've never seen a player completely just flip switch like that. From not wanting so, to shoot to, like, yeah. here I am. I'm taking threes again. And it's like, he's taking threes off the dribble. It's not just, like, I mean, he's looking like he was when he first got to Portland last year. Which, Jesus Christ, that feels longer than a year ago. Um, yeah. But... It's just overall, like, obviously, he's not going to shoot 62% from the field, 64% from three the rest of the year. That doesn't happen. But, like, the as, as we talked about earlier, the process has been awesome from him. Like, he fits so much. Like, you can just – obviously, just, like, the grit grind, Tibbs play balls to the wall all the time mentality. He fits that. But, like, with what they actually want to do of, like, okay, drive, kick, read, react, play very basic basketball, but play it at 105%. He's so good at that. Like, that is what makes him a really good player. Um, and this has been a, just a joy to watch. Uh, I, I mean, he's one of – tells you who I am as a person, but he's one of my favorite players in the league. And this totally just agree with you. ratchets that up even farther. 
Um, it has been like a match made in heaven. He's already he's played seventy eight minutes in three games already while coming off the bench. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you can tell how Tibbs feels about this. Yeah, uh, Josh Hart and Jalen Brunson have played forty nine minutes together. They have a forty two net rating. They are scoring one point six points per possession in those minutes. That that is uh, that that breaks my brain in so many real ways. I think what happened with Josh Hart in Portland, this is this is kind of my read on it. Uh, not doesn't come from enough people that actually know, but I've kind of talked, I've kind of floated it to some people, and they they wonder if this is true as well. The idea is that Hart knew he was the fifth option in Portland, and specifically decided to take a step backward. So that Damian Lillard, Anthony Simons, Jeremy Grant, Yusuf Nurkic would get the shots, right? He thought that it was a better offensive situation for the team if those guys were shooting. Mm-hmm. I wish I, that Chauncey Billups had told him he was wrong because if that's well, I, true, for, yeah. For what it's worth, like Chauncey in public was saying, like, we need to get Josh to shoot these open threes, right? So I, I think that he was. But – that's my read is that Josh Hart is just a very unselfish person in those minutes. And he was taking on a ton of defensive like equity, right? He had to guard the hardest person on the opposing team every night. So I think he used all of his energy to rebound, to try and guard on ball against very difficult players every single night and just let his offensive role slide because they had all the offensive guys in the world to uh, around him in order to rock right yeah. and in new york where he's in a bench unit where he can pair with emmanuel quickly and get more shots and pair with jalen brunson occasionally and get more shots i think that he's opening up again and obviously he's shooting like a billion percent from three right now and that won't hold but just the confidence if he's going to shoot threes he's a super valuable player because he can take on tough defensive assignments. He's a great rebounder. He's a he's a playoff player if he shoots threes and like makes 36% of them. He's typically a 34% three-point shooter. If he makes 36% of them with how gritty he is, with how tough he is, with how he rebounds, with how he defends on the ball, makes high-level passing reads as well. Like that's another thing. He can attack closeouts and hit kickouts. That's why, for instance, his assist rate, I believe, was pretty high this year if i remember correctly like he was averaging 3.9 assists per game which was yeah after last season a career high uh, outside of last season a career high so it's a perfect addition uh, this is exactly what i thought josh hart was going to be it's why i loved it and why we talked about it this is basically my favorite move of the deadline outside of the star moves it's just it's a perfect fit across the board right mm-hmm yeah, no, one hundred percent. It's been uh, it's been a blast to watch. I'm excited for more of it. Yeah. Okay. I don't want to talk a ton about Jakob Pertl. I want to give you the floor to talk about Jakob Pertl. If you want to listen to my thoughts on it, I talked with Samson Folk over on uh, Thursday. I believe that was. We dove deep into everything there. I want to give Mark the floor to talk about Jakob because I Jakob Pertl is a Mark Schindler kind of guy. That's true. Um, part of the reason I love this is. Uh, like sneakily, I have, God, I say sneakily all the time. I gotta, 
I gotta improve my lexicon, but like um, low key, baby, <laughs> low key, yeah. Uh, the Raptors have been a pretty bad screening team the last couple of years. Like they really don't screen very well to open things up, and I think adding a player like Yak is huge in that. And so, like we we talked about on our pod, and I, I haven't gotten to listen to the one with Samson yet, but I'm sure you guys talked about how like one of the things to to notice and like look forward to is like what does this look like for Scotty being you know less of a screener and moving off the ball again. I mean, moving back onto the ball a little bit more. Um, what does that mean? But I th- and I think there was a lot of reticence with that um, before, you know, like when the trade happened. But even now, like I think there's already really exciting stuff of with Scotty and Jakob and pick and roll. Like, yeah, teams are going to switch it. But Jakob's been destroying switches already, which I felt he was going to be capable of doing because, especially with you know Scotty, I think he was going to get. He's had smaller players guarding him a lot of this year. And just sagging off, but now okay, if you're going to switch that, like against Orlando, um, they switched Markel Fultz on the Jakob multiple times, and he just hit like a, a 12 footer over them. Like okay, cool, I'll hit touch shots all day. Um, but again, it's just the screening and the capability that he has on the roll as both a really quick decision maker um, and somebody who can who can just operate as a hub in the middle of the floor. Um, something they haven't really had since Marcus Hall. So. I think that's been really key. I'm interested to see what more of it looks like. He's shown some really good stuff and um, just doing doing things with 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 Pascal and uh, and Scotty that I really like. Like having, I mean, like even just move, moving the ball to cutters. Like it's been huge. Like it's been very nice to see defensively. Um, I think I would like to see them get a little bit more. Uh, conservative and play him in a deeper drop they've been much more wanting to play him close to the screen i think he's good at it he's capable of doing it um you get to have pressure that you roaming back line which that's exciting um i think even with them still being aggressive like it gives them more of a safety net just having yaka being big and in the way and in the right places so i don't i mean think nurse is never going to change that i don't think unless like he has some come to jesus moment which i just don't know if he's capable of um, so I like, I would imagine this is what it's going to continue to look like. I've been encouraged by it. Um, also too, for Fred, like, I think this is really big for Fred Van Vliet, getting somebody who can screen him yes. open the way that he's been able to, um, and just having somebody who is going to like, yes, he's not a shooter, but I think he carves out more interior space than I, he's going to get, he, he ever really gets credit for because of how effective he is as, as that floater touch guy and somebody who can be savvy as a screener. So um, I've really liked what I've seen so far. I think Malachi Flynn has, has looked good in some opportunities with him as well. This is the first real big that Malachi Flynn's gotten to play with um, or positive offensive big that Malachi Flynn's gotten to play with, I should say. Um, so, yeah, that's where I'm at with it right now. I think it's the other thing that I would add to, I know it was really long-winded, but uh, there was like a lot of idea of like, oh, well, I just want them to tank this year and bottom out. And like, I get that. I get wanting to to be deeper in this draft or um, to not give up future picks, but I think a, I don't think that it's bad pick equity that they gave up. Like I'm not super worried about it. This team has no intentions of going backwards. Um, when you get a guy like Scotty, I think not to say like the they're contending now or anything, but you're in an odd spot of like I don't really think you can go backwards when you get a guy like that. Um, when you're trying to, it's hard to I should say like maybe you can, but. Um, I think it's really hard. I, to take- I think this was their opportunity to, if they were going to yeah. do it, 
I think well, this yeah. deadline was their chance exactly. to. But I mean, like going know, forward yeah. is what I'm trying to say. Like, I think if you're getting into year three and you've been like a pretty steadyish good team or decent team, it's hard to just be like, okay, well, we're going to go lose 20 games now. Like, that's really hard to 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 tell that player and like get them to to be on board with that. Um, so I think to me, this is more about a they're they're keeping their options open for for what they can do and set the market in summer because I still think they're going to move some guys. Um, but also like you add a positive player right now who helps the development of that guy that you just drafted in a spot you're probably not going to get back to drafting at. Like everything that they're doing right now is built around Scotty and then improving from there on out. So I think when you add a guy who is just not getting into his prime that they're likely to resign in the off season and is going to be supplemental to, to developing him, like, Think about all the guards who have developed really well in San Antonio because of Jakob Pertl. Like, DeJounte Murray had a career year and continued to improve because of Jakob. Like, obviously, he put in all the work himself. I'm not just trying to make it about Jakob. But, like, having a guy who is steady on both ends and can play a two-man game with you on both ends is really important to developing guards. And I think if you want to get the most out of Scotty's guard skills, having a guy like Jakob is really important for that. So, um, I like the move yeah. from them. yeah. I, I liked it. I, I want to see where they go. And that's kind of what we talked about on, you know, Wednesday, Thursday with Samson, just cause like, I, I don't know, you, you could sell me on like a number of different directions for them. I have no idea what they're going to do. And that's what makes them like the most interesting team building team in the league right now, just because there are a number of different avenues that they could take. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm glad that you brought up the idea of Yaka being like in the middle uh, of their offense and being like a short roll guy, because I think that what they've looked best at this season is offensively kind of when they use Scotty in that role. And that's obviously not what Scotty's role is going to be long-term. I think they hope, I think they think he's going to hopefully be more of a focal point, a hub offensively that can score at a really high level and can be like your 20 point, seven assists per game guy. And he, I think he has that upside at some point. I would rather go get someone like Jakob that can help him reach that goal as opposed to like shoehorning Scotty into maybe what his role is best at now, yeah. where he can get into the interior of the defense, kind of rip them like from the inside out with his passing ability and with a short role, like driving ability and go from there. So I, I think that developmentally, it's really going to help them as well. Yeah, 100%. So, like, exactly. Because like, I think it's tough because it's not a uh, – um, it's not, like, sexy in terms of, you know, we're getting, you know, this guy that we can – we're not getting, like, the number seven pick or number eight pick or, or whatever. Um, and I do – like, again, like, there are real trade-offs with that. But also, again, this is – it's a long-term move still with the idea of improving Scotty. So, um mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm I'm excited to see how it continues to play out. Any other big names? Should we talk about the we should talk about the Blazers and what they've looked like, right, since making these moves? Because obviously a bit polarizing what they did. I didn't like it. I'll say that. I think Blazers fans are hoping that it will work out. I haven't really liked what I've seen, if I'm being completely honest. I know that. Matisse Thibel played really, really well in that first game. I, I'm just very skeptical about this wing core being enough to kind of make it work around the guards and around Yusuf Nurkic. Yeah, I mean, to me, this was an automatic. Uh, not that they, like, sold out on this year, but um, 
Yeah. It's not uh, like, I don't know. It's, I mean, I appreciate that Cam is coming in and like he does something for them that I think is important. Like just having a guy who will shoot it. Like that was their, their issue with Josh was like, we need you to shoot the basketball. And like, I, again, like I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I do think that there's, there's credence to that, but like, I do think they continue to need guys who can be just good and capable shooters off the game. So far, Cam has been. As I'm, and based on NBA sample, I question what the three is going to look like continuing moving forward. But I'm hopeful for him. I've always been somebody who is interested by Cam and what he can do. Um, I think the defense from him has been solid so far. Like again, just being big and um, I. I mean, it, he's always been like it just. It, it depends on what you're asking him to do. But with yeah. Matisse, I'm in the same boat. Like I, that first game, cool to see him let it fly. Um, I need a much bigger sample size before I'm ready to be in on that. Um, yeah. Because I mean, yeah. d- did you watch the, did you watch the Washington game? I did not watch the Washington game, but I know he was not good in the Washington game. He he wasn't very good. Cam scored 18 in that game, but I, I didn't think he was very good defensively in that game either. Um you know, Kyle Kuzma got loose for like 33. Part of this was that Porzingis is just such a ridiculous marginal advantage against Drew Eubanks, just because Eubanks is small. It's good. Like as nice of a story as I think Drew Eubanks is, he's like a good energy backup center, right? And Mm -hmm. playing him 25 minutes a night or whatever they have to play him right now is just not going to go well. Um, Yeah, I mean, here's the problem that Portland's going to run into. Let's say Cam Reddish and Matisse Thai will play well the rest of the year. Do you know what you have to do this summer? You have to pay them. Yeah. Because they're restricted free agents. That seems bad to me. Um, that, that seems that seems like a very risky endeavor to me that could result in very real problems for your organization moving forward in terms of overpaying players. So I this, these are the situations that good organizations tend to avoid. Getting players right before their extension or free agency eligible. You know, they, they got the first round pick in the Cam Reddish deal. I don't think they're necessarily beholden to him. But if he goes out and averages 15 points per game, you probably sign him at that point, right? Yeah, I, I don't... I don't know. I'm probably less worried about the money because I don't frankly think either guy is going to command very much um, based on what their it feels like their market was, um, especially with Cam. Like, no offense to Cam, but like, I just I don't think I even see a team paying the MLE for Cam right now. Yeah. Um, I think Matisse is going to get eight figures a year. Really? Wow. I would, he's two times all defense. I think he's going to get eight figures but, a year. Yeah, I would disagree heavily with any league person who does that, but good. I mean, get your money, man. Um, I, I disagree with you too. I, I don't think I would pay him that for what it's worth. Yeah. But no, I yeah, no, I didn't mean it for it. you. I just mean like, hey, yeah, if somebody does that. Oof. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting bet. Like, hopefully, it pays out. I just like, I it is. I, I don't want to like automatically discount everything that they're doing, but. I, I don't know how – like uh, teams trying to thread needles like this typically just does not work very well um, yeah. of trying to be, well, we're having you – know, we want to keep our youth youth together and keep that core going while we also have this all-NBA player who, oh, hey, is having like arguably the best season of his career. Well, we want to try and yeah. blend the two of those together. And I just 
you never know how health is going to go. You never know what the development's going to look like and how things are going to play out. And as much as I am excited about what Shaden can be, um, as much as I like Anthony Simons, like I don't, I don't think that to me that that is enough to to warrant what they've done with with Dame here. And granted, Dame has played a part in that as well. Like he's wanted to stay in Portland, but um, yeah. I'm I'm curious to see how it plays out. But I, I'm not very encouraged right now. Well, let's be clear. This has been the best season of Damian Lillard's career so far. Straight up. It has been. He's averaging 31.4 points, 7.3 assists, shooting 47% from the field, 37% from three on 11 three-point attempts per game, 91% from the line. He has a 64.8 true shooting percentage. Yeah, that's a career high. Everyone's true shooting percentage is up this year, right? It's actually the highest percent true shooting percentage plus he's ever had according to basketball reference which is true shooting percentage compared to league average Mm -hmm. so this is the best that damian lillard's ever looked point blank it is the best he is shooting better from the foul line than ever he has a higher uh effective field goal percentage than he has at any point of his career outside of 2020 uh you know it's just it's absolutely ridiculous and on top of it he's having his best finishing year of his career uh, it's remarkable what he's been able to do. And this team has no chance defensively when I watch them. They just don't have a chance. And that's before Yusuf Nurkic gets back, and he's been the root of their defensive problems a lot of the time this season. So, yeah. Uh, the, the NBA is not a league of half measures. That's what it comes down to. The NBA is not a league of half measures. You are rewarded for making full-scale decisions. Going all in like Phoenix did, going all in like the Milwaukee Bucks did in the Drew Holiday deal, going all in like the Golden State Warriors have when they could have decided to move on from this core. They could have decided to move on from this core multiple times. Clay Thompson got hurt and missed two years. Draymond Green had multiple contracts where they could have let him go because he was getting older. They paid $500 million to keep this core together and they were rewarded with an NBA title last year. Yeah. Even on the other side of it, on the other side of it, the Thunder are being rewarded for going the other way. The Philadelphia 76ers were rewarded for, you know, the process essentially because they have Joel Embiid now. So you are rewarded for going full measures. The NBA is not a league of half measures. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I agree. It's I just hope that they. I want to be optimistic about Portland. I just uh, struggle to be right now. So I I want to be optimistic about them too, because Dame is one of my favorite players to watch in the NBA. I love him. He is awesome. It's hard to be optimistic about them right now. Yeah. Um, You said you haven't watched James Wiseman yet. Maybe we'll do a later pod, like maybe in like two or three weeks on what we think of the Wiseman experience. I will note that I thought it was a lot of the same that we saw in Golden State in those 20 minutes he played against Boston. Scored very effective offensive roller and rim runner and transition threat because of how fast he is and just how much ground he can cover and how much ground he can cover vertically as well, just getting and high-pointing the ball better than anybody else. I, I did not really see anything defensively, and I don't really expect to the rest of the year. Because uh, this infrastructure defensively is just very bad. Is there any other uh, trade deadline acquisitions that you want to talk about? No, I think I'm good on that. Um, 
Because, yeah, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk more about the Lakers as things go on. Um, I guess we haven't talked about the Lakers, have we? I'm okay with that, man. Like, I... I think we I, have to I'm, talk about the Lakers, Mark. I'm sorry. Do we? Do we? I, and I don't I don't mean to seem like a Laker hater. I just am tired. Like, dude, they're in 13th, and we keep getting playoff graphics for them. Like, come on, bro. Um, I will say, in watching uh, their game against New Orleans, like, that was the first time this season, and honestly in the last two and a half years, that I've watched this team and gone like, yeah, they have real versatility in their roster. Um, yeah. And that was cool to watch because, like, you could really see them start to, like, try and pick on things and try and find uh, some avenues to to attack some of New Orleans and smaller players. So it's like, okay, well, we're getting overplayed a little bit. So what if, uh, you know, have Hachimura duck in and because he has a small on him and get him the ball? And they did that two or three times. And, like, um, you know, D'Lo has been really good for them just off the ball, playing as a combo guard, um, shooting. Like, he's doing the things that they need. Jared Vanderbilt, I've – Really, I mean, I you know me. I love Jared Vanderbilt. Like he does all the things that I absolutely enjoy about basketball, and I think he's been a perfect fit for them, energy wise. Um, you know, defending everywhere, doing a short roll stuff, having a little bit of the handling. Um, I'm interested to continue to see how they play him and AD together because they've been willing to do that so far. Um, I don't have like super concrete takes on what they look like together yet. Um, I want to have you know some more tape on that before I, I get uh, where I'm at with them, especially because AD is just he had a weird week, man. I don't want to be too harsh, but that was a, that was a very bad week of basketball from him. Um, but yeah, I mean, like they just, they have like a real rotation now. Malik Beasley is fit in. He hasn't even shot well yet. And I think he, he, he just has gravity, which matters. Um, so yeah, I'm a, uh, I'm Laker curious. I am not ready to be uh Laker aggressive yet. Yeah, I almost want to avoid this in large part just because, like, LeBron has been out, right? Like, there's no real, like, up up until that game against New Orleans, like, we're working with, like, a 29-minute sample here outside of LeBron. Like, you know, they look great together. And part of what we talked about with D'Angelo Russell is that I think that LeBron and D'Angelo should work really well together because LeBron can initiate and D'Angelo can just go play. Right. And I thought in that Pelicans game, we saw like what the best circumstance of that is with D'Angelo Russell. He got to the line a ton. I thought that like his passing was really, really good. Just kind of creativity, like creatively, right? Like he, it didn't feel like he felt like he had to get everybody involved. It felt like he was just playing and just going and just reading what the defense presented him. And that's where he's really, really good is when he can do that. And uh, yeah, I mean, if here's the other thing, like we're talking about Anthony Davis having like a terrible, like weird week, Anthony Davis had what, like 28, 12 and like five assists in that Pelicans game and was like killer. Right. Yeah, yeah, he was really. Yeah, I didn't mean to be unfair towards him. He was really good in the Pelicans. You're, you're not wrong for he what was it's just, worth. Yeah, from, like, from OKC yeah. to Portland, um, watching him, uh, I'd imagine there's there was probably something going on off court. I don't want to speculate, but yeah, it was that was some weird basketball from him compared to how good he's been this year in general too. Um, but yeah, I like again, I I come away pretty optimistic uh, just because of how pessimistic I was earlier in the year and yeah. how different the roster is. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I have I have positive takeaways. 
What are your thoughts on what this team's starting lineup should end up being? I think they should start Vando. Um, like I, I think it's LeBron, LeBron, D'Lo. I'm, I probably Austin Reeves, Vando, and uh, um, an AD. That's probably where I would go. I don't know if that's where they're gonna go. I don't really like. I guess you can all you, they they like starting Rui so that LeBron doesn't have to be the four. I guess that's fine. I'm just like. I'm not like Rui's biggest fan. I think he's been done okay in, in, in Los Angeles and he's had some nice moments. I just, yeah. I, uh, with his player archetypes hard. So I, I guess like you can start him and just have him be like a, you know, 18 to 20 minute game guy or something like that. But, um, to me, I'm like much more interested in, in having Vando at the four because of a, what he can bring, like his defense just matters a lot more to me. He's a better rebounder. He does, frankly, everything better other than mid-range scoring than, than Rui right now. And I think, well, yes, there are certain limitations. I think leaning into, okay, what if we really just try and be a team that can find our way defensively, has options as an offensive team, really get, tries to get out and transition more, sort of the, the what they had you know, a couple of years ago when, when that was really their bread and butter. Again, it's a different team for sure, but um, I do think that they could really look into that and try and be more – more of that mold again. Um, so that's where I would probably go. Yeah. I'll be interested to see them play a team that can really put pressure on them defensively mm-hmm. uh, with some of the lineup constructions, like using D'Angelo Russell and Malik Beasley together. I feel like it's something that is going to be difficult for them if they don't use like Austin Reeves at the point of attack in those lineups. Right. Um, the, the Hornets just can't, or not the Hornets. I'm sorry. Good Lord. The Pelicans, um, can't really quite do that. Um, it, it's complicated for them right now without Zion. So it's it, it's interesting. Uh, yep. the, the Beasley thing is going to be interesting just because like he gives them a real dynamic as a shooter. I would venture that that will be helpful probably in bench units more than it will be as a starter. Totally agree with you on Rui. I think the Rui thing has gone as good as it possibly could have, if I'm being yeah. completely honest. Yeah. Minus the, um, he hasn't shot well, but... Uh, from three but other than that like yeah i think he, he like he's been solid like he's been a yeah solid rotation player for them which that's that's something totally uh i think at the end of the day it's probably d'angelo russell lebron jared vanderbilt anthony davis austin reeves is their best five if you mean yeah that. having a two-way guy out there in austin reeves that can shoot and defend and then having a uh guy in Jared Vanderbilt that can take the four like that. That is what LeBron wants. As you said with Rui, like LeBron loves not having to play the four Jared Vanderbilt stops that from happening. And Jared's just a more effective player than Rui at this point. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that that's, that's my bet on it. And then you can have Schroeder run second units. You can have Malik Beasley get shots in second units out in transition and all that stuff. Okay. Last part of the show. Mark Schindler ISO time folks. Mark Schindler on Malachi Branham. Let's dive deep. Go for it. Yeah. Um, I am so here for Malachi Branham. Uh, I don't remember if we'd ever talked about this, but I was like exceptionally high on him last year. Like I, I had a lot of regret on him. I thought that this was a guy that every year, you know, people are looking for who's that, you know, quote unquote star bet. And I thought it was him in this last draft in terms of like a guy who, maybe flies in under the radar, obviously was super young. 
uh, was not at all expected to be a one and done guy at, at Ohio State and just popped after Ohio State had their COVID break. Um, so I think what makes him so fascinating is watching what his development has been like this year because I've kept up a lot with the Spurs just because they're in a really interesting spot of seeing a ton of guys develop. And he went from a guy who, and like, granted, like, we have to be real, like, the Spurs are not good right now. They are arguably the worst team in the NBA. Um, they are, um, like, I, like they are relatively competitive still. Like, they they get blown out some for sure. But, I like, they've even, like, the last, like, week or two, they've been in most of their games. Um, I think when you're looking at a young player and how they're gauging, like, I'm not looking, like, yes, yeah, so again, like, there's, there's levels to competitive basketball. But when I'm looking at, okay, Malachi Brandon at the beginning of the season, first of all, I mean, he's not even starting off in San Antonio. He's, you know, getting G League assignments at first, which, good, like, that's what he needed. When he was playing, he was looking, like, very all over the place. Um, he was passing up a lot of, a, a lot of threes. Um, he was, like, just – Overall, like you could see a lot of uh, um, hesitancy in his game. And I think over the last month, so like after Christmas, I think you could really start to see because he became like just before Christmas, he became a regular rotation player for them. They they decided to bring him up from the G League full time. Um, And it was a little bit rocky for him at first, you know, kind of finding his way as a ball handler. Like I think the mid range scoring has popped the entire season. Like the pull up shooting has been there. Um, But like January, he really starts to find like the pacing and ability to just be this really funky, strong change of pace guard slash wings. He's, he's he's a weird mold with what his size is, but um, and then I think you know later January you started to see his pick and roll playmaking pop a little bit. Like he's getting better with hitting some of the well, like just finding his roller, like timing that stuff better. Because I think earlier in the year you could see him really looking to make pocket passes and make the right pick and roll read but he'd either do it too early or too late or premeditate it. And I think now you're starting to see him just kind of do it in the flow. And then February is hit. He's a full-time starter now. And let me just read off his February numbers because this is awesome. Uh, eight games in February. So granted, it is a relatively small sample size, but it, it is meaningful. Um, 18.1 points per game, four boards, three assists, 52% from the field, 41% from three on six a game. Not getting to the line very much, which that is that's a talking point with him for sure. Um, the biggest thing for me is like this is a guy who went from at St. Vincent St. Mary's, like he just did not shoot threes. He was not a three-point shooter like at all. Mid-range pri- gunner. Yeah, primarily just a mid-range guy. So that's why last year at Ohio State, like he originally was not even a starter, wasn't really taking threes at all for them. And then after the COVID break, whatever snapped for him. He was like, all right, I'm going to pull up. I'm going to start taking threes. It wasn't even that. I think he took like three and a half, four threes per game after the COVID break. It still wasn't even that much considering what his usage is. But to see him do it now, like he's not hitting his pull-ups super well yet. Uh, I checked the numbers earlier today. I think he's like three of 20 on pull-ups, pull-up threes on the season. Uh, And almost all those have come, uh, you know, over the last month. But like he's finding ways to open himself up off the ball and be – ready to shoot and um, just doing all these things that he had not done at all last year. Like it was not accustomed to doing it all in high school. wasn't really doing an AAU. Um, so like the scoring growth has been really fast and really impressive for him in that regard. I was really high on what his shooting potential could be just because like he has ungodly touch at, at his size with what he does. Like 
especially with how hard his diet is. Like he's shooting like over 50% on floaters this year. And that's most of his shots are floaters and, and like tough leaners and, and faders. Um, but I think again, like looking at all this, it's less about what this, what the scoring is. It's more just the process overall. Like, the level yes. of comfort he's at as I think he's the eighth youngest player in the NBA right now. He's like a week. I, I was researching this earlier. He's a week older than Jeremy Sohan. And he just legitimately has been a good scorer who is comfortable handling the ball and pick and roll, making, making the right reads and getting off shots that are extremely difficult um, and doing it well. Like again, it's a small sample size. So you don't want to take too, too much from it. But I think this is the stuff that had me encouraged about him. Like if you continue to see this kind of growth and process from him of continuing to find his game, figure out how to like, cause playing with Zach Collins has actually been really fun for him. Like Zach Collins, I thought was playing well all year um, given what his role was. And now you, okay. Instead of having Jakob as the screen and roll threat, you have Zach who brings some of the same things as, as a screener and DHO guy, not the same level of screener, but is a pretty good um like DHO play, playmaker, but then you have that pop threat. And now I think that that adds an interesting dynamic. Um, I'm just really excited about what this can be because you have the framework of a guy who, while noting he has real uh, deficiencies as a rim scorer, like I think what I'm interested by, like, cause he is very strong is can he really like one of the swing skills for him is going to be, what is his foul baiting craft? Like that's going to be huge for him. Like, how can how can I draw free throws? Use my arms, use my shoulders, use my length, and and try and bait bait people into fouls because I do think that's going to be necessary for him to 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 boy his scoring a little bit because um, he's like I think he's dunked three times this year at most. Yeah. Um, like he like like I mentioned the free throw numbers. He in February he's only gotten to the line in three games out of eight, and that's kind of the thing with him. Like most of his. Uh, free throw attempts from last year were like, I mean, they, they call things differently in college to a degree. Like part of that, you're bigger, faster, stronger, even if you're not like yeah. a vertical athlete, like he was six, five and could just bully people. Um, and he has to a, a degree on some smaller guards this year, but again, like what does it start to look like as defenses adjust is going to be really key. Um, but again, like I'm not to get too far myself, too far ahead of myself, but like this is really exciting stuff. What he brings, because yeah. again, like, Teams want guys who can handle the ball, that can make solid decisions. I've never thought he was a great field player, but I never thought he, he had bad feel for the game. And I actually think, over again, over the last month, like you've seen his feel improve. You just continue to improve his court vision and how he feels in the court. And when you have a guy who can do these kind of things that is flashing some of the ability to be a multi-level scorer on good efficiency and hit difficult shots with regularity, like that's exciting shit. Um and that's why I was excited about him. So why I'm going to be excited about him moving forward. So two things I want to bring up that um, you sort of hit on one of them. You didn't really hit on the other one. Uh, the first oh, the one defense is, is like, terrible. If you're about to hit on the defense, defense is abysmal. That's, that's the second thing. And I'll talk about that in a second. Um, the first thing is just like the pace he plays at. Uh, he plays entirely at his own pace. There is never a point where he lurk, looks hurried. There's never a point where it feels like defenders can like get underneath him and bother him because of how strong he is. Right. Like he will take a ball screen. He'll pound dribble twice, put it between his legs, put it back between his legs, 
basically stop and pause in the mid range, which is a really hard thing to do for young players, right? It's really, really hard for them with all of the length, all of the athleticism, everything that's flying around. It's often really, really hard for young players to just stop in that area and figure out what's going on and decide what to do and keep a defender on their hip, keep a defender, you know, on their back. He does that really, really well. I I think that that's what I've been most impressed with that that has translated immediately. That's a difficult thing. Even guys that do that in college, especially teenagers transitioning to the NBA, doing it, that doesn't always happen. It takes guys a long time to figure that out in many cases that he has that already is what makes me think that, as you said, the process is good here. It's not a situation where the process is poor. He is able to just kind of hold his space. And even though he's not getting all the way to the rim, he is creating interesting opportunities, both for himself and his teammates, because he is such a good mid range shooter. Mm-hmm. Do you have any any thoughts on that? Because th- that's like that's the thing that stands out to me most, even beyond the shooting, the touch, everything like that. That's the skill that I think translates really, really well to the NBA is being yeah. able to just get to your spot in the mid range, be comfortable, be unhurried, have your balance underneath you. That's what makes him such a good shooter in many cases. Like his balance, it feels like is always, always. the center of gravity is always underneath him. Yeah, yeah, he's. He's awesome, man. I really like he that's he just his get down is so fun to me, man. Like I like because exactly like you mentioned, there are not guys like him, really. Like I think people people can look at his shot. It's it's funny. Like this is this is a good example. Someone that you really like is Jalen Noel. Jalen Noel is someone that does this really well, too. Yeah. And what's fun too is like Malachi has so much better prospect too. But it's like I I mean, I just get better than Jalen. Yeah. yeah. I just get getting talking about man. Like it's uh, because like you mentioned, like the pacing, like they're just again with how young he is like so often i feel like most guys are coming into the league with all their skills like super developed and refined but they don't have that pacing like that's the stuff that takes a longer time for players to to kind of figure out and get behind um but with uh with him like he's coming in with that already and there just aren't a lot of guys who have that um so yeah yeah super exciting to track moving forward because they are like again not to discount anybody um, or like toss anybody aside, but as things have gone this season, I would say like, obviously Vassell is at the top um, for me with what he's looked like. Obviously he's had the injury, which has sucked. Um, But Sohan has done really exciting things. I argue that Malachi has probably been their third most exciting prospect this year with what he's done. Um, Cause are we just like moving on from Kelton Johnson? I wouldn't, I'm not sure I'm calling Kelton a prospect right now. Yeah. Like, cause he's, I mean, he's, he's a vet to me, like, and he's still doing good and exciting things. It's been a weird year for him. Um, but yeah, I mean, like Blake Wesley has really struggled this year. Part of that. I mean, he's young too, but again, like Malachi are like the same age. So it's, I don't know, just in terms of the way things are shaking out, it's really exciting. Yeah, no, I agree. I think this season has gone as well as it could have for San Antonio, given that they came in with no vets, like very little lottery end, like high end lottery talent. And they've developed these guys really, really well. I, I think that Sohan looks great. I think that Branham looks really, really good. And, you know, if you hit two out of three with him and Branham and Wesley, you're going to be really happy. Uh, mm-hmm. I do want to talk about the defense very quickly, but in a different <laughs> way that I think you want to talk about it yeah. or you don't want to talk about it. Um, 
yes, he's a really bad defender and that's accurate. It's been accurate at Ohio state. Having said that I watch a lot of Ohio state because of course I do. I went to Ohio state. I love the university. I, I watched a lot of Ohio state this year. Woof. It's not, the they're yesterday. in the midst. Not good. Yeah. They're in the midst of a disaster season and they're in the midst of a disaster season because their defense is terrible. Right. I'm starting to wonder because we're going through this right now with Bryce Sensabaugh, right? Like Bryce Sensabaugh's defense is really bad too. How much of it is these are two specific prospects that just had two very weak defensive games. And I think they've always had weak defensive games. You go back and you watch Branham's tape in at the prep level. You go back and you watch Bryce's game at the prep level. It was not good. They were both very bad defenders. Is this like an evaluation thing where the Ohio state coaching staff is not caring enough about defense is it a teaching thing where they're not teaching it well enough? But we now do have like a fairly unfortunate track record of the last three years where they finished 82nd, 111th. Right now they're 110th in defensive efficiency, according to Ken Palm. I don't know, man. Like I'm, I'm wondering if Branham, I guess, being in that San Antonio system, playing for Greg Popovich, Maybe there's a case that the defense comes around, I guess, is where I'm at. Yeah. I mean, like, I think it can come around. Um, it's going to be more dependent for me. Like, he's really going to have to get better with angles and stuff because he's in a weird spot of, like, as good as he is with, like, uh, you know, shoulder dipping around screens as an offensive player um, and taking angles and being adept with that, he is so bad at that defensively which I think that's stuff you can learn, but that's going to be a ton of reps. Cause like as solid as this feel for the game is offensively, I think it's feel for the game as a defender is pretty bad. Um, yeah. Like he, I don't think that his foot speed is like terrible and he has wingspan, but he's just in a weird spot with what his build is. But and yeah. Like how, how much is. of that is teaching versus like how much of this is teachable versus just like innate feel is going to be a really interesting. He's going to be a really interesting case study for that because yeah. he's coming from a really bad scenario seemingly for that going to a really good scenario playing for Greg Popovich and the Spurs who for like two straight decades up until the last two years where they've gone full youth movement have been unbelievable defensively. Yeah. So like he should theoretically be, this should be like a really good test case, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm like, I'm positive. Like I'm fairly optimistic that he can get to be like a neutral defender. I don't think he's ever going to be a significant positive. Um, but I think like he definitely, uh, like exactly it's one of the bigger swing skills for him you know like i think yeah. arguably like those things become it's why i was lower on him than you yeah. pre-draft I, yeah I, those I those things like are like they end up being the bigger swing skills on like okay well does this guy continue to get more minutes to to develop out that offensive game so having that that defensive ability to to be able to stick especially in like but that's part of why san antonio was a good place for him because he's not going to have some of the same uh like he's going to get more more leeway than than he would be if he was in a place that is in a more like I know a lot of Raptors fans have like really wanted like every time I tweet about Malachi like that's our pick like you know I'm like I do not think Malachi fits anything of what they want in Toronto like I I, I right. get it you know just from a straight up looking at the pick but it's a, an important reminder of how important environment is uh, because I don't think that he would thrive in right. Toronto right now no I think that's right I mean I, for what it's worth, I had Malachi at 21 last year and talked a lot about basically like all the offensive like skill. It's just, I just didn't think that 
what I was wrong on is that I think he can be, I think he can make his play style work efficiently. Like I, I had real like questions about whether or not that would be effective. I also had real questions about the shot as well. Like his, his pre-draft shooting was apparently really bad. If you talk to teams, mm. um, he was trying to go through some mechanical adjustments, I guess. And it just was not working in the way that uh, we had hoped. And by the way, he's still shooting 31% from three. Like these last few games have been really, really good. Like, what is it, seven or eight games? But he is 31% from three so far this year. So that that's really the swing skill, is him shooting from distance consistently. And if he can't do that, it's, it's going to be hard. But the creativity, like, I actually really buy the ability now to, like, get into the areas that he needs to get into, I, I guess is what yeah. I would say. Yeah, no, that's totally okay. fair. I agree. Have you watched any movies, Mark, this week? Dude, I've watched so many movies. Oh my god! Have uh, you? Yes, yeah. I uh, so I've you, watched. Man. I think I've watched almost all of the Terminator movies back again. Um, I watched Terminator Three for the first time, and I know why it was the first time I watched it. Now that was so bad. Um, it's just, fine. It's it's a yeah. pretty dreadful movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, it was like that was a. What's so tough is, like, in Terminator 2, I would argue that Terminator 2 is, like, Arnold's best acting performance of all time. Um, like, yeah, he's good. In Predator, I think that like, that's Terminator 2 is a really good though. case, yeah. But, like, and I think some people would scoff at that and be like, well, I mean, it's just an action movie. But, like, he, he legitimately acts incredibly well in that movie. I think I look at it almost the same way as I look at Wesley Snipes and Blade. Like, could anybody else have pulled this off, been as cool as they yeah. did doing it, and been believable? And I think the answer is no. So, like, to me, that's good acting. Um, but it, <laughs> Jesus, he's so bad in Terminator three. The whole script is bad. The plot is bad. Acting overall is bad. Dude who plays John Connor, just like not believable at all. Um, it's what it was it, like, it's, it's a fine movie. Like, it's like, I'll give it like a five out of 10. I like Terminator salvation better than, than Terminator three, um, which I know might be a hot take for some. Um, cause that was like the last movie Sam Worthington did before he dropped off the face of the earth out of acting. Cause remember like Sam Worthington was Which, in like uh, every movie for about four years. And then they're like, Oh, you're not an actor anymore. So we're not going to put you in movies anymore. Yeah. Which, which one I'm trying to remember the difference between salvation and Salvation was one that Christian Bale was in. Salvation is better than Genesis. Then yeah, I Genesis, Genesis I thought was like a day. pure disaster. I did not like Genesis. Genesis was weird. Yeah. It was like uh, a movie that had Terminator qualities that was absolutely nothing like it. Um, it's very yeah. weird. Um, Have you seen Dark Fate? Dark Fate is on my watch list. I'm probably going to watch it tonight, actually, because that's Dark the last, Fate is good. I haven't watched. I've yeah. heard it's good. I've actually never seen that one before. Yeah, Dark Fate is really, really good. I, I think you will enjoy that. Yeah, the, the best, the best Arnold acting performances are probably Running Man. Yeah, definitely T2. I mean, I'll always go to bat for Kindergarten Cop, just in general. Kindergarten like, Cop, movie, dude. Uh, that movie so, should never work, and it does. Fun <laughs> fact about Kindergarten Cop. That was uh, – so I grew up, like, right in the essential time of, like, when a movie just runs every day. Yeah, for, uh, that was on place. TNT all the Kinder- time. So I, I've always been an early riser, right? Like, I've always been somebody who wakes up, like, 5.45, 6, um, just because my – I grew up in a pretty small house, and – my bedroom was right next to the bathroom. My parents woke up at 5.30 to get ready for work. So, all right, man, if the shower turns on, I'm up because it's right next to my wall. So I'd be up and, like, ready to go to school by, like, 6.30. 
and then my bus wouldn't get there until like 8 15 so i just watched movies in the morning <laughs> and so yeah i watched yeah. kindergarten cop like i mean i think i watched it every day for a couple of uh, a couple of weeks before i changed it up but yeah kindergarten cop rocks it's a good movie um yeah i'm trying to think what uh what else have you watched have you watched anything else uh i'm trying to think i know i have watched other stuff um let me pull my you gotta, gotta get on that letterbox hive i've been putting on, stuff man. on letterbox but i keep forgetting um yeah. to update it what about you what have you watched recently uh so i've been very locked in to work and yeah. really i was like full out until two days ago and over the last two days i watched the creed movies again nice uh, creed one is so, so good. good yeah creed, creed. creed is one of the best movies of the like last like 15 years i would agree I with think. that i think it is so good it, it just it works in every capacity in a way that it shouldn't work in every capacity um ryan coogler i'm like that, that's one of my favorite directors I, man i'm ready for anything yeah. that he directs i'm gonna watch when that movie came out, that's the one where I was because I really liked Fruitvale Station. Um, yep. I thought it was amazing, and I was just like, "Well, let's let's see what he can do now." Like, this is theoretically like a really good fit for him, but you know, he's leveling leveling up in like a pretty real way, doing like a popcorny movie, and that was the movie where I was just like, "Oh no!" Like this guy is like new Spielberg, like he yeah. is like he is going to be everything. And then he went on to do both Black Panther movies, and it's been just as effective and. and you know, I think that the last Black Panther is probably not as good as yep. the first one, obviously. But that I was another. I I just watched that because that just came out, obviously. Yeah. Um, it wasn't bad. Like, I mean, it th- I think it was good. It just like it almost felt a little bit too long to me. Um, I, I don't also. think that it was his fault. That it. Yeah, was no, so I'm bad. not saying it's his fault. It's just having because to do what they did was really difficult. Um, yeah, like, I can't imagine you essentially. Really- yeah, like Chadwick Boseman like passes like right before they're about to start shooting and they have to retool it on the fly in such a substantial way. And I feel like it's it is basically two movies. Like it's, yeah. you know, reckoning with the grief of, you know, T'Challa and Chadwick Boseman's passing as well as trying to move forward this Marvel story in like a substantial way. And it, it's just hard to do all of that in an effective manner in two and a half hours. And I think he did as well as he could have. It's just the, the movie doesn't hang as well together as you want it to. I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, have you seen I'll Ant-Man be, yet? I have not. I'm not like super enticed to see Ant-Man. Um, I'm like a little bit. I don't want to say I'm marveled out, but like there's just it's so much, man. Like I have uh, like I've I love Marvel. I love the MCU. Um it's been one of my favorite things to keep up with over the last decade of my life, but also it's just like getting to be a little too much, man, at least for me. And I'm not, I don't mean to sound boomery, but like, I, I I'm, don't mean to sound boomery says the 26 year old. I'm 25. <laughs> okay. I got two more months, uh, three more months, but like it, it just like, I don't know. It's starting to feel like content for content's sake sometimes. Um, so like, I'll, I'll go see it. I just, per- I haven't particularly loved Ant-Man. Like, um, yeah, he's a fine character, but like out of all the Avengers, he's the one I probably care the least about. Other than Hawkeye, I'll go to bat every day to say Hawkeye is like the least in- compelling character out of anybody in Avengers. Um, I mean, it's hard. Have to you go seen up. the Hawkeye TV show? I've not. I've actually heard it's kind of decent, but it's really good. 
I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I just now finished WandaVision. That's how long, I, that's how bad I've been at keeping up with some of the Marvel shit. For what it's worth, before you see Ant-Man and the Wasp, you should watch Loki. Okay. All right. I have not watched Loki, so I will do that. Um, that is like the next thing I have to catch up on on Disney+. Plus. Have you been, uh, been watching Last of Us? Yes. Oh, dude. What do you think? Goodness. I, so, I was ready to cry last Friday, uh, but yeah. yeah. Goodness. I mean, it, it's... So again, like I, as I think we've talked about before, I did not play the Last of Us games. Yeah, um, for whatever reason, like it was right in my wheelhouse. It just was a blind spot for whatever reason. So I'm like going into this completely fresh and like not knowing what's going to happen. And yeah, I mean, it's just unbelievable. Like the way that. So like, did you watch Chernobyl? I did not. It's the same director, so, though, isn't it? Craig Mazin did yeah. Chernobyl as well as this, and Chernobyl is it's strange because like Chernobyl is like this incredibly serious event that happened in 1986 with a nuclear reactor failing in the Ukraine. And, you know, this is a video game TV show, right? But you can see a lot of the same touches in Chernobyl that you do in the last of us, just in terms of like the depths of despair and also like the little moments of humanity that people try to pull out of that despair as much as anything. I think that that's what Craig Mazin is really, really good at finding is being able to build those moments of like those real moments where you try and even though you're in the midst of an incredibly difficult environment, you try to find something that you can latch onto and that you derive you know real real like mirth from basically i think he's really really good at doing that in this show um obviously the third episode is like a big example of that with murray bartlett and nick offerman i thought the episode that you're talking about the fifth episode with um henry and sam like that that's that's kind of exactly what we're talking about here and that that i think is what differentiates this show from the walking dead from all of these other shows that you could compare it to and why I think it's as impactful and as effective as it is. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Like what I've loved is uh, like, I think some people and I, I think a lot of the reasons been bad um, didn't like uh, the second episode. I mean, the third episode, I loved it. Like I love the way that they are not like, liking me, the was, third episode is a bad take. It's a, it a bad very, take. Um, but like, I think when, when people are bringing up good faith arguments, uh, or at least like reasonable faith arguments, that they don't like, you know, TV adaptations that make changes. I think I just look at it differently. Like to me, um, I don't want like a direct adaptation. Like I want it to be something that adds something to it, adds something of value. And I think what I've loved about the show is they've been very true to the game while also expanding upon your, what your knowledge base mm. is and helping you get further more complex understanding of the world that you're in. And I mean, that's, what's so powerful about the third episode. Like these two characters that you really hardly know anything about from like a 15 minute playthrough in the game, you get this entire world knowledge and you just get so much more emotion and understanding. And like, it's beautiful, honestly. Like, and I think part of what, like, like you mentioned, part of what has helped really been cool for me in this, because like the game, like, obviously, you pick up a lot of stuff in the game. I think you really don't get the full picture until you're at the end of um, of the game and uh, and get, like, mm. a better – which you're not going to be – you are not going to be ready for the end of the season. Um, now I think about it. But, like, the, the appreciation you get out of, like, 
all this hardship is about like uh finding like i mean joel is a character who is completely devoid of love and feeling like that's the whole point that's where why he's doing what he's doing that's where he's at like he's trying to go reconnect with like the last person in his life that he has any kind of connection to his brother um and like as we see part of what was so powerful about this last episode like you start to see him get that feeling like when he looks back at the grave after Ellie starts walking away and you can see like, he's starting to get some of those feelings back. He's like, you know, I really care about this person. Like I, right. The things that I felt for my daughter again. And it's just powerful stuff. Cause like you mentioned, like as much as it's difficult and hard to um, deal with some of the, the sad things, like it's really about finding hope and compassion and joy again in a world where it seems like it should be impossible to. Um, and right. I love it. It's such great storytelling. And more importantly, like Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey have been awesome. Like they've been yeah. so good in this. All the surrounding casting has been awesome. Like the, uh, um, I can't remember her name, but who just played Kathleen. She was fantastic in this. Yeah. Melanie Linsky. Yeah. Uh, I like yeah. you mentioned Murray Bartlett and Nick Offerman were awesome in that episode. Um, everything. It just, it feels impactful. And I've, I've really yeah. enjoyed it. I want it to be Sunday already so that I can, I can watch the next episode because it's been so good. And have you, have you watched yellow jackets yet? I've not. I've heard yeah. it's good. Ye- yellow jackets should be next on your list. The okay. Melanie Linsky is like the main uh, character in that show. It's it fucking rules. It's so good. I've it heard it's back good. in March. Um, and it's just, it, it's probably the thing I'm most looking forward to TV wise. Uh, I thought it was just like incredible. You know, because like Christina Ricci's in it too, and Christina Ricci is just like having the most fun on planet Earth playing this role. Yeah, and yeah, the whole the whole show is great. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's that's all I've got. I haven't watched a ton of new movies recently. Okay. Um, I mean, last shot I have, I watched Blade Two for the first time. I'd never seen Blade Two for you, man. I was worried that Blade, like, I was like, am I gonna lose like the feeling that I have from Blade One? Nope. Still rocked. I will not watch Blade <laughs> Three because I've heard that Blade Three is bad, but um, the one that Ryan Reynolds is in. But uh, now, yeah, Wesley Snipes just—you cannot recapture that man. Like he was Why? so good. Why do I think that I don't mind Blade Three? What am I? What am I thinking here? I'll have to check it out, but I've heard I've heard very bad things about Blade Three. Oh no, this is not what I'm thinking of. This is like goateed Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, yeah no, this this movie is not very good. Yeah, um, so it's. I mean, I enjoy bad movies, but yeah. like, I don't want Blade ruined for me because I really like that's Blade's like a comfort movie for me. Like, I love Blade. Um, it was dope because like the first Blade, um, like it, it very much feels like a late '90s movie in every facet. Um, and it's it's funny because like this movie picks up on like some of the same stuff, but in the early 2000s way, because um, I think Blade 2 was like 2003 or 2004, if mm. I remember correctly. And like it was uh, it was so enjoyable. I really loved it. Yeah. Uh, Mark, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at MG underscore Schindler. Um, I definitely want to promote a podcast I've been working on and really enjoying called They've Got Now. It's a pretty, it's, you know, all all things women's basketball um, and diving in having some really great interviews. I just had Kalia Copper, Chicago Sky on. She was fantastic. I recommend listening to that and uh, and checking that out. I'll have tons of work coming out uh, over the next week or so. But yeah, man, it's been fun. Go subscribe to They've Got Now, Mark's venture talking about women's basketball and talking to many women's basketball players. Um, 
throughout the course of while you've been doing that? Like you've, you've gotten what, like seven or eight on, haven't you? Yeah. And I just recorded two more today. So it's been, of course, it was like one of those weeks where it's like, well, you know, I've been trying to schedule these like a few for like a month. And of course, all PR people hit me up the same day. Like, well, what if we do this week? I'm like, well, I will make it work even though I probably shouldn't. So we'll, (laughs) we'll go from there. Yeah. But, um, you know, you know how it goes. Go to The Athletic. I've written way too many words this week, if I'm being completely honest. Uh, Mock draft is up from yesterday. Go read and find that. Uh, What else? What else? What else? Uh, I wrote about the draft and the impact of the trade deadline on the 2023 NBA draft from some of the things that Houston did to Utah to uh, the picks that swapped hands, everything, this, that, and the other thing. What else? What else? What else? Yeah, just go to The Athletic, click my profile, and you will find all the things that I've written recently. What else do we have for you here? Go to theathletic.com slash game theory. Go subscribe to the show like that. It's probably the best way that you can support the show. Go to subscribe to this podcast on YouTube. Uh, game theory podcast with sam vicini that is a great way for you to support the show that's actually free for you all you have to do is hit that subscribe button and you will help us out quite a bit hit the like button on the bottom of this video if you're watching on youtube while we go live and hit the subscribe button on your many podcasting apparatuses from apple to spotify to whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts now that all of that is out of the way until next time We will talk soon. Bye.